Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It's Thursday night. Mark and Mark, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton here to talk about all the news that has gone on in Formula One this week. And Mark, you know, it's funny when we were sitting down after we finished the show on Monday night, I figured it's going to be a bit of a quiet week and it's turned out to be completely not a quiet week. But I guess we kind of hinted on Monday night it was going to be busy and it certainly has turned out to be that way i mean but we got a lot to talk about we got british grand prix this weekend we've got the sprint race the first major coming up in formula one uh what else the new cars and and it just keeps going on and on but before we get into it it's friday we're halfway through july can you believe it we're like a quarter the way through the summer dude i do it's crazy on the one hand, I'm happy because it feels like with every day we're putting COVID farther, at least in North America a little bit, we're putting that farther and farther in the rear view mirror, but it's going by so quickly. We're almost halfway through the Formula One season. We're almost yep. halfway at the summer break. We're doing some cool stuff. We're stacking some really cool content to drop throughout the summer. So I know a lot of people to kind of take a vacation from F1 during that summer break. Please don't Keep your eye on your podcast feed because we're going to be dropping some really, really cool stuff throughout that period, starting with some work we're going to start doing on Saturday. But you're absolutely right. It's a crazy week. Not only are we going into the first F1 major of the year, tomorrow, Friday, we have qualifying. Saturday, we have sprint qualifying. Saturday or Sunday, we have the Grand Prix. Of course, today, and we talked about this a little bit during our Monday, Tuesday show, but we got a sneak peek, at least a a sneak peek at the template of what the 2022 Mm -hmm. car could look like. And there's tons of other news to get to so exciting times for sure and wow way to put the pressure on by dropping all these hints that we're coming out with tons of exciting content coming out over the over the summer i i feel so pressured now that we we need to deliver so i guess we're gonna have to start sending some messages and phone calls and texts Uh, i'm gonna dust off the fax machine if that's what it's gonna take (laughs) to make sure that we could deliver all the things that we wanted to but it's all good quality of your webcam i wouldn't put having a fax machine (laughs) past you you know what the funny thing about this crappy webcam is it's supposed to be a full 1080p but I, I i'd be shocked if this thing was 480p you know it, it looks like vhs quality webcam here it's like it's it's like the 1998 logitech webcam you know somehow i just i managed to splice yep. a usb adapter onto the 12 pin serial port or where there you connect go. or whatever so anyways well you know we, we started off with a little bit of lightheartedness but gosh you know mark we started the show on Monday talking about poor Orlando getting mugged at Wembley after the Euro final. Uh, when he was getting into his McLaren, he was robbed of his 40,000 pound uh, watch. And, you know, it just hasn't gotten any better for McLaren in general because just before we were about to kick off and get the British Grand Prix started, it was announced that uh, McLaren CEO Zach Brown and a couple other McLaren employees have tested positive for COVID. And it's just. 
well, hopefully he's, uh, you know, not going to get very ill about it. Obviously, the other people, too. But just talk about a bad week for this team, eh? Absolutely. Obviously, if you if you weren't listening earlier this week, Lando robbed at Wembley following the, the UEFA final. Terrible moment. We'll probably talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that again in a couple of minutes. But this is a bit of a shock. And I think we've I think we've begun to take for granted how effective the COVID bubble around the Formula One ecosystem Mm -hmm. has been. We haven't seen a lot of this. Obviously, we knew a number of drivers got COVID in the offseason last year. Obviously, Lance sat out a race, Sergio a couple of races, Lewis sat out a race. But it feels like we've been getting a little bit comfortable and taking for granted a little bit just with respect to how how effective the bubble's been. So for me, Mm -hmm. this one came as a bit of a shock. And if you'd seen the footage... Uh, Zach Brown was at the Festival of Speed uh, a couple of days ago, wearing a mask, socially distanced, etc. So this comes as a, a bit of a surprise. I believe, I believe he's fully vaccinated. My sense is that he contracted coronavirus. I'm hoping the expectation is that he's probably going to rebound pretty quickly. He'll obviously be operating from mission control in front of his television, in front of his laptop <laughs> at home. But obviously, it's still a blow for that team. And it's not just that he's not going to be available and present at the track this weekend, but it sends a shudder of fear throughout the organization, right? Like who else has it? How many people are affected? Do the drivers have it? Do we have to bring in a replacement driver? It creates fear and anxiety in an organization that probably is already a little bit shaken because of what happened to Lando a couple of days ago. Yeah, you're not kidding, too. And I mean, it, it seems almost a bit strange, too. I mean, it, McLaren is really where this whole thing kicked off way back in the spring of 2020. What with the, Great the, the call positive in uh, Australia? Yeah, in Australia, exactly. Those the positive case that they had then. And it seems now just as like you said, we're, we're putting this whole thing behind us. And we, we, it feels like we're getting back to normal that this sort of comes out uh, from from nowhere. But yeah, hopefully, um, n- none of them get uh, very sick. And they're all back uh, soon. Uh, Zach did say that he will be uh, watching and supporting from home. Like you say, probably sitting on his couch or in his home office uh, watching uh, on TV. But yeah, did you see any of that uh, Goodwood Festival of Speed? That has to be one of the things on my list that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd love to do one of these days. I mean, you see all, all the videos of uh, these just iconic cars. And I saw a video, I think Damon Hill posted it, uh, of him driving his dad's uh, Lotus. I'm not sure exactly which model it was, but that it, it's just really, really cool. When, it, when you can see these old cars, especially the old Formula One cars driving around there, it's just going to be, I think, uh, it's going to be one of those must-do events for any lover of motorsports and cars. It absolutely reinforces how deeply entrenched motorsport is in the social fabric of the United Kingdom and I think mm. England in specific. And we talk about this so much that, you know, we have 10 teams in Formula One and seven of them are based out of the UK and almost all of the suppliers are based out of the UK and there's countless world-class tracks in that country. Of course, the rich heritage of motorsports in that country is crazy. And I I was looking at a stat earlier today that said there's something like 40,000 people in the UK that actively participate in some level of motorsport, whether that Hmm. be autocross or rally or regular track events for motorcycling. And that's a higher number than in any country in the world. And England's also home to the most motorsports teams across all the different formula, across all of the different series, including stock car, open wheel racing, rally, et cetera. It is absolutely, to me, the heartbeat of motorsports globally. And of course, the US has a huge footprint. Don't get me wrong. Stock car, open open wheel racing, uh, dirt oval, all that kind of stuff. It's big in the UK or in the big in the US, but the US has passion for so many 
different types of team sports, football and basketball and hockey and mm-hmm. baseball. And UK, their passion is really concentrated, obviously, into football, a little bit of rugby and cricket, but motorsport sits somewhere that I think it's hard to understand and contextualize in North America. And I probably shared this story before, but I, I was sitting at a MotoGP event in the UK once and I'm surrounded by fans as they were, but they were folks that I would never, and this is terrible because I'm kind of judging judging a book by its cover, but <laughs> just listening to the quality of conversation from these folks in the stands behind me about the drive or the riders and the bikes and the compounds of the tires and the improvements they've made to Silverstone, it just really reinforces how deeply embedded motorsport is in that country. And to your point, the festival speed is something I've never been and I would love, love, love to go. And for those of you at home that are thinking like, hey, you know what, should I go to a Grand Prix? Am I going to go to a Grand Prix? The UK and the British Grand Prix is a great place to go because you can build a great trip around it. You can do a couple of factory tours. You could do the festival of speed. You could go to so many other things. Like if you're a motorsports fan, the UK is a great place to go. And it's accessible because of the common language for a lot of Americans. Yeah, exactly. And there were so many cool places that we went to when we were growing up and in the UK on family visits and summer holidays and stuff like that. And I never really appreciated at the time when I was younger, but I I wish I'd uh, remembered (laughs) a lot of the places that we went to. Uh, My dad being a big fan of uh, motorsports, he'd take us to all these places that he used to go when he grew up and when he was living there. And then I wish that... uh, I wish I paid more attention to some of them, especially when I was younger. But uh, anyways, let's move along. Oh, just before we move along, actually, um, just to uh, finish off this uh, discussion on Zach, but apparently he was going to drive Mario Andretti's 1978 Lotus 79 at a, a demonstration at Silverstone this weekend. So obviously that's not going to happen now. What with poor Zach uh, going down with coronavirus. So he's going to miss out uh, on that, which is uh, obviously a bit, bit of a shame. Now, anyways, uh, just uh, going back and talking a little bit more about uh, Lando Norris. So he said that he's still not in what he said was perfect condition after that nasty incident at Wembley on Sunday in which he lost his 40,000-pound Richard uh, Mille watch just in the, the the mayhem and everything that was going on around the uh, the, the stadium. And uh, when he was asked, he said, quote, I'm all right, thanks. Maybe at the, not at the perfect condition, but, betting get the, but getting there, pardon me, I think one of the best things has really been able just to come to Silverstone and get my mind off it and focus on a different job. So we're just as excited to be here. I'm getting there and I'm sure I will be all right tomorrow, end quote. So, yeah, we we did uh, talk about it uh, quite a bit at length on the Monday Night Show, and I I can understand Lando being rightfully upset about that. I mean, obviously losing something as valuable as uh, and a status symbol as a 40,000-pound watch is one thing, but just the the violation of your own personal safety, sense of safety, I mean, I, I can understand that's maybe not something you're not you're not going to put behind you in just one day. Absolutely. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but there is an accredited F1 photographer named Kim Illman who's developed something of a big following himself. I think he has 200,000, 220,000 followers on Instagram. He has wow. a very popular podcast. He's he's become quite familiar and built relationships with a lot of drivers on the grid, um, as well as wives, girlfriends, different team personnel, et cetera. But he'd actually posted a photo of Lando arriving at the track today. And in the description, he'd, and I thought this was a little bit callous and a little bit cold, but he'd made a mm-hmm. comment, and I quote, Lando Norris arrived at the track this morning in casual attire without his Rashar Mill watch. It's believed this watch was the one that was stolen. 
that seemed a little unnecessary. And when I was kind of scrolling through Twitter or the comments and Reddit later, he got roasted for this. Like this is a oh, guy really? who's F1 accredited. He's around the drivers. He's around the paddock calling that out and reinforcing and reminding the world that, oh, by the way, here's a photo of Lando, but his watch is gone because that's the watch that was stolen. Totally, totally not cool. And to your point, I think in his case, he didn't pay for the watch. I don't think he's concerned about the value. I don't think the team's concerned about the value. I don't think Rashard Mill is concerned about the value. To your point, it's more just about that sense of vulnerability. The Mm. fact that he was somewhere where he should have been safe. He should have been protected. There should have been security. And not just for him, but all of the fans. That this could happen was was terrible. And I've never been in a situation like that, but reading through some of the comments on Reddit and Twitter, a lot of people were responding to happen. You know, I was mugged. I had my phone stolen. Somebody grabbed my purse on the train. I felt terrible for days, weeks. I couldn't sleep. Like for a lot of people, in fact, I assume I would probably be the same way. It's pretty traumatic. And I'm sure it was the same for him. Let's not forget the fact that he's not a 35, 36 year old weathered character he's a young kid doing extraordinary things in f1 but he's still very young and probably felt very vulnerable in that moment yeah totally yeah it was just a a nasty nasty situation and 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 hopefully he can put it behind him soon but I, i can completely sympathize and empathize why he would still you know still feel the after effects of something really really unpleasant so uh mark where do we go now um, okay, here. This is one. Th- this is perfect because we're going to be coming up on a break in a couple of minutes. So I think this is the perfect one just to close out this first segment. So we did talk about on Monday night about the release of the Hamilton Commission report and this whole, uh, you know, their, their list of 10 um, uh, su- or not uh, suggestions, recommendations. recommendations yeah, yeah. Yeah. Recommendations for diversity and everything that uh, they want to see implemented in Formula One. So they uh, Formula One has kind of picked up on that. So they've this week they've uh, unveiled plans for a new scholarship and internship and apprenticeship program, and this is going to focus on what they call underrepresented groups to uh, in order to improve diversity throughout the industry. So that's in- interesting because it's not just the sports, it's not Formula One, but industry wide. So. I'm glad to see this, and I'm you know excited to see that uh, Chase Carey, the Formula One executive chairman, has um, stepped up. He's putting in a personal donation of $1 million, which is not chump change. That is a very big uh, chunk of cash. And I'm excited to see this. And so what they're doing, so all 10 F1 teams, they've uh, committed to provide work experience op- opportunities to uh, a scholar during their time at university with their partners to institutions being both in the United Kingdom and uh, Italy. So there's the University of Cambridge, Coventry University, Manchester Me- Metropolitan University, uh, the Motor Vehicle University of Emilia Romagna, which is uh, near Imola, University of Oxford and Strathclyde University. So about half a dozen uh, very prestigious uh, sounding schools there. So the Formula One Apprentice Program will see place two long-term apprentices from underrepresented groups within our organization in 2021. The apprenticeships will begin in September and will have a focus on mechanical engineering, end quote. So that's cool. I'm a little bit disappointed it's only two. But I'm hoping that from here it will grow. And also they do have an internship program that will see six interns from underrepresented groups be offered roles within Formula One this year on a mix of short and long term placements. So two of them, (coughs) excuse me. I've already been given assignments in Formula One's motorsport and marketing team. So it's a start. Obviously, it's got to grow from there. But what's your take on this? Are you 
are you cool with this or are you feeling like me that it's could be a little bit more yeah to me it's nice but my sense is this is more window dressing to be totally honest and i think one of the things that actually did get me really excited about the hamilton commission is the fact that at its core it's pointing at the structural foundational issues that are creating a formula one that lacks the diverse representation it so sorely needs. It It's not simply pointing back at F1 saying, hey, look, there's a lack of diversity there. Let's swap out some personnel. You know, mm-hmm. that that's, that's nice, but it's not sustainable. You need to address the root cause of why there's a lack of diversity in F1. And I think one of the things that the Hamilton Commission does so well is it points at the foundational issue, which is there aren't enough people of ethnic and diverse backgrounds teaching in British primary schools. There aren't enough young, diverse students that are being exposed to engineering and all the other kind of programs that would lead down this pathway to Formula One. Like The Hamilton Commission really looks at this at kind of the foundational grassroots issue. Like, look, we can make some short-term unsustainable changes at the highest level, but that's not going to help develop young people who will want to pursue this as a career and provide opportunities for them to do. That's, what, that's, that's what's so exciting to me about the Hamilton Commission is that it talks about the root cause. Now, Mm -hmm. that said, we also had a really great conversation on teams tonight and so much of what on teams on spaces tonight. And one of the things that we were talking about in, in great length was, Hey, this is a really good template. This is a really good structure for formula one. And if it's successful here, Indy would be really, really smart to borrow this template and apply it Mm -hmm. to its own sport. And likewise, so would NASCAR. Now, whether or not they're going to be open to this or not, I don't know, but I think if F1 can really deliver on some of the recommendations within the Hamilton Commission, that's good. And one of the questions that I get all the time from folks that are new to F1 is like, how quickly do you think we could see a woman driving in Formula One? And how quickly could we see more diversity at the highest levels of Formula One? I mean, the reality is if a team wanted to put a, a woman in an F1 seat today, they could. If if they wanted to go out and drive more diversity and bring in those drivers today, they could. But I don't mm-hmm. think that would necessarily be setting those specific individuals up for success. I think the first real, I guess the first of the modern era, female F1 drivers out there, I think she's probably nine or 10 or 11 and she's in cart and she's going to benefit from some of the really great infrastructure and programs that are being put in place now that weren't there five or 10 or 15 years ago. So I think a lot of these things are good. I think we Mm -hmm. just need to be conscious that some of this is a slow burn and it's going to take time for these young people to have the same opportunities that people full disclosure like you and me have perhaps had for our entire lives, not to get super political or off kind of off the track here, but I think these are great things, especially with the Hamilton commission and they're going to start building opportunities. It won't change things overnight. And I think what you talked about a couple of minutes ago is a little bit of window dress. It's not terrible. It's not going to hurt anything, but I think that we need to address the root cause, which is why aren't these young people having these opportunities? Why aren't young girls being exposed to carding? Why aren't young black kids that live in underprivileged communities in greater London looking at engineering as a development path for their personal for their personal growth? So hopefully mm-hmm. we can start to address some of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, time for a break here. When we come back, we have uh, put off, discuss well, purposely, putting off uh, talking about the release of the temp, yeah, the teaser of the 2022 cars. And we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back right after this short break. So don't go away. Passion, drive, 
and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. It is Thursday, July 15th, and it's Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton talking all about the latest Formula One news. And Mark, we've been waiting for this moment literally for two and a half, three years. I've almost <laughs> lost count ever since they said that they were going to be changing the formula in 2021. Then, of course, because of COVID, pushed back to 22. Today, we had the release at Silverstone of the prototype car. This is basically a template, but it's a full-scale mock-up of what these new cars look like. And I must admit, I think it's great to see what the cars look like. I'm really kind of taken aback at the drastic change to both the front and the rear wing it's very sleek i like the the dropped nose on it i'm glad that there's no really funny looking weird things that we've seen at the front of the car over some of the the more recent years especially going back to 2014 when they had some peculiar things on the front end of the cars but I, I like them. It's going to take a little bit of getting used to if this is what the cars are going to look like on the grid uh, next year. But l- like I say, the what really stands out to me immediately is just the change of the design of the rings, uh, the wings, especially the wear ring. It's it's very radical looking. What, what's your takeaway from the the release of this mock up? So yeah, you better you better put a pause on the next two commercial breaks because this is gonna this is gonna, <laughs> gonna be take long. a while. So I'm excited. I love it. And let's be very honest. We we had a pretty good idea of what this car was going to look like. There was leaks a couple yeah. of weeks ago back in 2019. I think at Austin, they brought out a half scale it, kind of earlier iteration of this, this car. So again, conceptually, we had a sense of what it was going to look like in terms of the front wing, the rear wing. And maybe to back this up, I think it's really important to understand and just contextualize that this, this is the end game of what Liberty has been working on developing since the minute they took over Formula One. They clearly had a game plan. They had a framework for where they needed to take Formula One. And to get to the point of increased parity and financial sustainability, they needed a cost cap and they need to simplify the cars. They've got the cost cap. Uh, They are working towards a long-term power unit solution, but this is their ultimate solution to increasing parity with a simplified model. So you're absolutely right. When you look at the car, it looks revolutionary. It looks radical. But let's be clear about a couple of things. One, these cars are going to be slower, and we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, And they're going to be far more prescriptive. And by prescriptive, I mean very much that the aerodynamic features of the car 
are going to be very much dictated by Formula One. So if you look at the front wing, if you look at the rear wing, that's virtually identical to what every single car on the grid is going to be rocking next year. Now, the other aero surfaces, so the aero surfaces that cover the, the side pods and the engine and surround the cockpit, it sounds like the teams are actually going to have a little bit more creative license there than originally they were intended to have. So I think mm-hmm. some of the teams had pushed back a little bit and ultimately F1 kind of leaned into that and said, okay, that's cool. We're going to give you a little bit more creative control here. But that front wing that you speak about and that crazy, crazy looking rear wing, they're going to be very, very similar next year across all of the teams. So they're considered really prescriptive components. But there's there's ultimately a lot to be excited about here. And I'm not so concerned that the cars are going to be a little bit slower and they might be two, three, four, five seconds a lap slower. We'll never know that on TV. We'll just never know that. We'll see that obviously if they're posting lap times versus the prior year and they're showing comps and stuff like that. But ultimately yep. the these cars are engineered in a way that it's designed to increase competitiveness. And we've talked so much this year about the fact that Today's Formula One car creates a ton of dirty air, which makes following it very difficult because the car behind them isn't as stable. The tires wear out quickly. They lose all their downforce. This car should, because of the aerodynamic features, because of the fact that we're going to talk a lot about this on an upcoming show during the the summer break, but because they're reintroducing ground effects, there should be far less dirty air for the car Mm -hmm. passing them or uh, chasing them. So it should make for, for better racing ultimately, but I like them. I'm, I'm excited. I'm less excited about the wheels. Uh, we're going to be moving from a 13 inch wheel to an 18 inch wheel. I've still yet to hear a scientific or engineering explanation for why that's a good thing for racing. If, if you've been around racing, if you've raced yourself, you know, that smaller, lighter wheels are incredibly valuable Going to mm-hmm. an 18-inch wheel not only adds weight to the overall package, but it adds weight in the absolute worst spot. The last thing you ever want when you're building a race car is increased rotational mass, increased uh, increased unsprung weight. It sounds like we could be adding up to five pounds per corner, and that is absolutely detrimental to the performance of the car. And I think if you ask any of the teams themselves, they're really upset about this, but I think this mm-hmm. is to appease Pirelli because it's a great marketing play for them because these tires are going to be much similar to what you see on a high performance road car, but the wheels themselves could add two seconds a lap. And that's simply because of the increased rotational mass. But on the surface, I like them. It looks cool. I cannot wait to see what the teams come up with. And I'm really excited to learn more about just how much how much creative license the car or the teams have with massaging the rest of the aerodynamic surfaces. What are you thinking? Yeah, well, you you raise a a bunch of really, really good points there. And the one thing that you're just saying just about the artistic license, like one place that we know that they're going to have some some leeway is on the the side pods, specifically where the inlets are, because there's going to have to be some sort of give and take uh, between the aerodynamic demands and also the requirements for cooling the power unit. So it's going to be interesting to see how each team goes about this and attacks that specific issue on the car. But I mean, that's going to be no different that we see on the cars now. It's just that the parameters that they have to work with next year are going to be specific for the new formula. But it's it's really cool. I think that uh, this this mock-up really gives us a, a good idea of what we could expect to see. And you really need to go through, I think, and look at all the different uh, photos that they have uh, out there because it's it's really interesting because when I, I look at, say, some of the head-on photos, the, the one thing that I'm reminded of immediately was when I see the, uh, the, the front wing is especially 
actually how the 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 whatever you want to call it the the end plates well they're i mean they we call them end plates now because that's basically what they are but now they're almost like a winglet like you would see like on um on, a, on an airliner or something like that how they they almost curl up from that flat surface of the the horizontal portion of the uh, wing and then how it curls up onto the side i mean it, it looks very it looks aeronautical. It doesn't yeah. even look like a car. It looks like an element that you would see on on an airplane. And then I find that the the rear wing is a very fascinating design because it is it is just not linear. I think that's the best way I can describe it. I mean, it looks very fluid. It's it's very different to the design that we see on Formula One cars right now. And I'm just really fascinated to see how this is going to work out in reality because you have to uh, you know go back and think that the whole idea that uh, you you raised it so nicely just now was the fact that the whole idea of coming up with this uh, introducing this new formula is to clean up this dirty air behind the cars and give the following car more uh, opportunity to close that gap to the car that's uh, in in front and by doing so in- increase and promote the opportunities uh, for for overtaking so i'm just wondering if you put these two cars uh, like a modern like a, a 2021 car and a 2022 car uh, beside each other in the wind tunnel i'd be interested to see the comparison between the uh, the arrow wake on one versus the other just how cleaner i guess you could say the the new car is compared to what we've currently been running for well at least since 2017 right? absolutely and there were a couple of great videos that i've seen i'll post them on the twitter feed later today but there's some really great videos that show and model exactly what that looks like and the fact that the new cars are going to be creating less of their downforce with the rear wing and and that seems to be what the main issue with the current cars is is that so much of the downforce is generated by the rear wing and because it's the rear wing that's creating this downforce that dirty air is basically being ejected directly into the car behind it the new cars are going to rely far less on that rear wing to create downforce because for the first time in decades formula one's going to allow ground effects again so there are actually now channels under the car so formula one cars today have a completely flat bottom the new formula one cars they'll have channels two channels under the car to direct airflow so a lot of the downforce is going to be created from these channels under the car less the rear wing and the modeling that formula one has devised or developed or monitored suggests that by channeling the air under the car and developing ground force there, you're creating far less wake and far less dirty air in the car behind. And there was a couple of really great press releases today that talked about just how much modeling Formula One, the FIA, and the teams have done over the past couple of years. They talked about not gigabytes of modeling data or terabytes, but petabytes of data that has come Good apart Lord. as this. Like the models, we're talking about millions of simulations, millions of models, more than any team could do on their own. Like this had to be a collaborative effort. And ultimately mm-hmm. everything they've done is, it's not so much about just developing a flat out ultra fast prototype race car, but let's mm-hmm. create a really fast race car, the fastest open wheel race car on the planet, but one that doesn't create that dirty air because we want to be able to promote passing and overtaking, which in turn creates excitement so all of that stuff is kind of cool the other couple of things real quick one the engines that we're going to see in next year's car and we talked about this a lot are effectively the exact same that we're going to see we expect to see the exact same engines 22 23 24 25 possibly but it does sound like they're going to start instituting some common componentry around the fuel system and the fia is now going to have much more 
direct monitoring of what's happening from a, a fuel flow and fuel capacity perspective, which may or may not be directly linked back to Ferrari. Thanks, Ferrari. <laughs> I'm sure all the teams are saying that. And then parts classification. And we talked about this a, a little while ago as well. And again, don't get overwhelmed. We'll talk about this in the future. But the parts that will be in each of the individual race cars now will fit into one of five buckets. They're called listed parts, standard supply components, transferable parts, prescribed parts, and open source parts. And to be very, very, very high level, a listed parts effectively remain a component that an individual team has to design. So F1 will say in the technical regulations, this part has to be designed by your team with your own IP. That's it. You can't buy it. You can't borrow it. You can't license it. You have to develop it. And the core component continues to be the monocoque, the chassis itself. And mm. we talked about that a few weeks ago when some people were like, well, why doesn't Red Bull just give their chassis to Alpha Tauri? They're not allowed. The other one, standard supply components, these are components that are designed and manufactured by a specific supplier. So starting next year, uh, parts including the fuel pump and tire pressure sensors, they will be built and manufactured by one specific supplier. All the teams have to buy those. They can't develop their own. They have to buy them from this one official supplier. Transferable parts, uh, that basically means that these are parts that can be transferred from one team to another. So that could be a power unit. Uh, a power unit would be considered a transferable part, um, as would gearboxes, hydraulic systems. Finally, prescribed parts. Those are teams or those are parts that teams build themselves, but to very specific specifications. So Formula One, FIA will say, hey, here's the specifications. You need to build this yourself. And then finally, finally, open source parts are free for teams to design to their own specification. However, and this is going to be new, while these open source parts can be built to your own specifications, this is the catch. You have to make the design details available to the other teams, which teams probably are not particularly happy about. So you'll hear more and more about parts classifications over the next couple of years because we'll talk about, hey, this is a standard supply component versus a transferable part versus a prescribed part. Sounds super technical. As we get into 2022, 23 and beyond, uh, we'll talk more about this. And this isn't totally foreign from today's concept. It's just going to be more clear which components fit into each of these buckets. So question, because this is all very confusing with these different categories. So if you need to MacGyver something at the track with a roll of duct tape, what, what category does that fall Were you in? on the Spaces chat tonight? Because that exact comment came up. Oh, did it? Really? Yeah. I, I was. I was creeping there a little bit uh, just for, for well, five or 10 minutes while I was waiting just to, to, to pick up a prescription. But I, I, I missed that. So whoever came up with that, uh, it's obviously kindred spirits here. It's, you know, it's, great minds think alike. By the way, it's so light. funny you say that. I was on a call today at work with, uh, with a bunch of our with our SVP of legal and some other lawyers. And I was kind of rambling on about some contractual arrangement we have with a vendor. And he basically paused me. He's like, this is all good, but nobody understands what you're talking about. And I kind of felt like I was going on to that same kind of conversational peak with parts classifications. Well, you should have said to them, you think I'm bad at work, you should listen to my podcast. Yeah, yeah. So there I'll you flex go. flex on the podcast at work. <laughs> That'll go over well. Exactly. Job security at its <laughs> finest. Exactly. Hey, uh, time for another quick break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to get Danny Ricardo's opinion on the new cars and why he thinks that they rhyme with a word that rhymes with it. Anyways, uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. Mark, just popping into the live stream here and Michelle G. Wayne is, she says, okay, first topic, and she's got two emojis of a dog and a poodle and it says dogs in the paddock. Did, did I miss something here in the spaces chat a little bit earlier? I, I feel like this is something I should have uh, picked up on, but I have no idea so what it, it is. It didn't come up uh, directly on the spaces, but Michelle had asked on, on Twitter earlier today, and it was a good question. And the question was really, why is it that some drivers seem to have some liberties in the garages, in the paddock that others don't in terms of bringing girlfriends and wives and family? Or in Lewis's case, he always seems to have had his dogs, Roscoe in particular. Ros- Roscoe, we all know Roscoe. He seems to be there. And and her question was, is this really something that's kind of contractual? Is this built into their contracts? Like, why is this allowed for some folks? Because you sure don't see, you sure don't see a mechanic bringing their their goats into the paddock because <laughs> they want to keep an eye on them. I don't know, uh, to be honest. Well, I, maybe because Borat's not one of the mechanics. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I just, I feel like if you're Lewis Hamilton, if you're some of these, these other folks, one, it's probably just a good look because it softens the image of F1. It looks good on social media. And also if you've built your entire multi-billion pound racing team around one driver and his talents, are you really going to object if he brings his cute puppy into the, I guess not, Roscoe's <laughs> not a puppy anymore, but his cute dog yep. into the paddock? Yeah, probably not. You know, I, I had to sort of chuckle when I, I read this one because it made me think about what was it Led Zeppelin way back in the day in their contract? They wrote something that at every show they wanted in the, I guess, in the backstage VIP area, all these different things. And amongst them was like a bowl that had to have something like 500 green M&Ms in it. And and everybody like I, I can't remember who told me the story as well. Was it just uh, because they wanted to be total rock star divas, which I guess, you know, they could be because they were their their Led Zeppelin. But I heard uh, you no know, a follow-up story was it was partly that, but it was also just to see that if the they included this clause in the contract with the with, with a promoter to go play a show in New York or Los Angeles or London, Tokyo, wherever it is, that they would actually know if these people were actually reading the fine print in the contract. I'm like, well, that's kind of a, an interesting way to do it. But sure, I mean, if you're Lewis Hamilton, you're number one, a super nice guy. You're also a super awesome racing driver. Would you really say no? So obviously, I guess it um, <laughs> it makes a difference of uh, who you are. I mean, if, we, if a couple of schmucks like us actually had jobs in Formula One, we showed up with our whole families yeah. or like you say, our goats or our cows or something, then <laughs> I'm sure we wouldn't even be allowed into the facility. There was there was actually a story back in 2013, and I just recalled this now. There was a story at the beginning of 2013, right before the season after winter testing, where Bernie, and I think this was an ESPN mm. story, Bernie had actually granted Lewis's dog, Roscoe, because I guess Roscoe was much younger there, had actually granted him a paddock pass for the season. So it could oh, be cool. that maybe this is just a paddock <laughs> pass in perpetuity, but it was also kind of surprising that Bernie of all people did this, because Bernie typically didn't show that that degree of kind of human spirits. But yeah, so maybe he's just had this paddock pass the entire time and contract contract aside, he was granted a paddock pass in perpetuity. 
There you go. That'd be kind of cool. I mean, uh, that would be an interesting kind of paddock pass to put on his collar anyways. Hey, just uh, another quick question. I wanted to go back and uh, keep talking about uh, the the new cars. First of all, we should just uh, mention this. Uh, Danny Ricardo today was uh, took a little bit of uh, flack uh, because he was heard on the live stream uh, making uh, the, the comment, yeah, no, it's terrible. It's shit. It's worse. And apparently he was sort of picked up in the live stream and uh, <laughs> speculation was that uh, he wasn't very keen on the new look of the car. And then uh, when he uh, w- when he was uh, confronted about it, he actually just said that they were they they were just talking, and he was talking about something else. And then it just unfortunately it got picked up on the live stream, and uh, he actually had a, a pretty good thing, you know, some pretty good comments about the about the the the, the, the new cars. Anyways, he had to say, "quote I like the rear of it. The rear looks pretty old school. Reminds me of two thousand eight with that style, which is cool. The front is very different, but like all things, the more you stare at it, the more normal it will start to look." End quote. And yeah, that that kind of sums it up for me because when I first looked at it, when when I saw the pictures that uh, that were released today, I didn't get up and watch the live stream, obviously because I'm lazy. And then when I wasn't sleepy and I was actually working, but anyways, that was my first opinion too. Was that it's going to take some getting some used to, right? Like it's it's very radical and it it looks very space age and very different than than Formula One. And you have to remember that since well, I mean, since always Formula One cars are always evolving. But I mean, this is quite the quantum leap uh, forward. But I just thought it was a poor old Danny Rick was <laughs> just being put on blast for unfortunately being too close to the wrong mic at the wrong time and just kind of being Danny Rick. It sounds like Danny Rick. I got such a chuckle out of this. I don't care. I don't care if he was talking about the car. He's free to have an opinion. I, I love him because he, sure. he is so open and transparent. By all accounts, the recording the recording itself, because it was taken, it's not clearly in context. It's not like there's a video recording of Daniel standing looking at the car while making those comments. It's an audio recording. And by all accounts, the audio recording was before the revealing. So it could have mm. been about something else. But it did, it did remind <laughs> me of that that podcast that he'd done many, many years ago on beyond many years ago, like two years ago, three years ago on beyond the grid. And he talked, he had this great story about how he taught his five-year-old nephew, that expression. Can I say it? It's not a swear word really. So I'll quote it. So he taught his five-year-old this expression to say, (laughs) to say cash money, quote, quote unquote, cash money B words. And I got such a chuckle out of it because (laughs) here he is being that bad uncle teaching his nephew how to swear. And then later there was a quote where he, he'd he'd claimed that he doesn't, at least according to Red, I haven't seen this, but at least he, he quoted that he didn't like to swear around Lando because Lando was so young, but (laughs) <laughs> but I do I do well, love yeah. Daniel Ricardo and I love that he would go on a podcast and admit that he was teaching his five year old nephew swear words. That, that's hilarious. I never actually heard that he doesn't like to swear around uh, Lando because <laughs> he's too young. And actually, Lando does kind of seem like a little bit of the sensitive type. So may- maybe it's a good policy from from Daddy Ricardo. Hey, uh, another question in the the live chat here, or sorry, the live stream. Um, Jack Rice uh, says, uh, "Do you guys think F one is moving towards a car that is basically the same across all teams, kind of like NASCAR?" I think we've talked about it uh, before, and and you specifically. So why why don't you pick this one up? This is a great question, and it's something that I'm very, very, very sensitive to. If we talk mm-hmm. about 
NASCAR and we talk about Indy, they are very much the definition of mainstream spec racing series. Obviously, there's some variation in power unit between the teams, but every Indy car runs the exact same monocoque chassis from the exact same supplier. And NASCAR is not a lot different. I think one of the things that's obviously always made Formula One really special is it's as close as you can get to a prototype open wheel racing series. And that said, though, frequently the FIA and Formula One step in and they halt that innovation. And one of the things I think a lot of newer viewers don't realize is there aren't a lot of driver aids in these F1 cars. And it's not because the teams can't develop them and it's not because the teams don't want them. But sometimes the FIA and Formula One just have to step in and say, the cars are getting too fast, they're getting too powerful, they're getting too easy to drive. Formula One cars Mm -hmm. haven't had traction control since 1994. They don't have ABS brakes. A lot of the things that we take for granted in our road car aren't present in Formula One cars. Now, to answer his question, absolutely. Like If we were talking about a spectrum today, which is like a full-on prototype racing series versus a spec car Indy NASCAR racing series. Formula One today is much closer to that prototype racing series. It's inching ever so much closer towards that middle ground. And, And I'm obviously very sensitive because I like the fact that there's a lot of creative license and a lot of innovation in F1. It's one of the things that makes it so special. But having said that one, mm-hmm. there's always a history where F the F1 and the FIA have to step in, reset the formula, get everyone back to square one. Teams will break through the, the, the regulations. They'll do it again 5, 10, 15 years later. This is more drastic than we've ever seen before. We've never seen so much so much regulation specifically around arrow and the design of the car. So this is, this is unique, but I think the reason ultimately Liberty is doing this is because they recognize that, Hey, all this innovation and creative license is great, but it's not sustainable when you've only got three teams that can compete and you've ultimately got seven teams that are going to exist on this financial bubble. It might not be in the sport year to year. So they're saying it's a compromise, which is that innovation and that creative license is going to be lessened because we need to create cost certainty for all of the teams. But at the same time, so again, I'm sensitive to it, but I also get it from a business perspective. And I also don't want to be in a world where, hey, you know, we have that creative license, we have that innovation, but only two teams will ever compete for a title. That's a terrible world to live in as well. So let's give it a try. It's worth trying. If it doesn't work, I'm sure it will revert or something will change. But I think it's worth changing or trying. Try yeah, absolutely. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was just sort of thinking as you were talking speci- uh, specifically about the cost cap. Where are we at this year? Is it 145, 145 million? Yeah, 140. Yeah, because then it's going to go down to 135 next year, and then it's going to get to the ultimate limit or ceiling at 130, I guess, in in a couple of years from now. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that the way that Formula One has evolved, that unfortunately, just with the amount of money involved and just the way that the that the teams that are the haves compared to the have-nots have just been able to spend their way to titles and not really worry about any of the consequences is unfortunately kind of I don't want to say forced their hand, but at least I, I well maybe it has, but at least sort of put the the governing body into the situation to to act where they have to come up with more standardized things, right? right. And I th- I think we will see more of that shift from the complete prototype to say this um, common template that uh, we see say in Indy and, and NASCAR and stuff like that. But I think it will always stay tilted more towards the the prototype series because. 
Formula One at its core, its its DNA, its roots, whatever you want to call it, is just that 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 uniqueness and the ingenuity and and I think to get completely away from that, where it just becomes a standardized series from from the chassis to the brakes and everything like that, just to basically okay, you have like chassis is made by manufacturer x and then you can plug in you know your power unit of choice i i i hope let's put it that way that we never see that and i think that we will see like i say it swing more that way but i think it will always say slightly mostly tilted towards the prototype series so i totally agree with what you're saying and the other consideration too and i think this is important for american listeners is i think we often Mm. look at the nfl and we look at major league baseball well probably less major league baseball but the nba nfl and, and the nhl and we talk about the fact that those sports have cost certainty because they have salary caps, but they also yep. have really good revenue distribution models. So if I'm an NBA team, the principal source of revenue for that sport is their national TV deals. Every single team gets an even cut of that money. Teams are responsible mm-hmm. for generating local sponsorships, local TV deals, local gate revenue, but ultimately the vast majority of revenue that any team earns is through their national TV deal. And again, that's evenly split up. Now, there's a salary cap and you can spend beyond the salary cap. But if you do that, you go into the tax, you go into the salary tax, which means that ultimately, if I spend a dollar beyond the salary cap, I need to give $2 back to the league, which gets distributed to the other team. So there's this Mm -hmm. really equitable distribution of money. And again, in the NBA, if I'm really bad, there's a draft lottery and I can get a really great player and start over again. In Formula One, there's zero cost certainty. If I finish 10th, I earn effectively nothing and there's no draft that's going to save me. So in Formula One, those top teams have everything to gain because they're the ones earning all of the money through the championship. They just put that back Mm -hmm. into their operations. And if I'm seventh, eighth, ninth, or 10th, there's no way, there's no way for me to improve my operations. And in fact, not only is there no way for me to improve my operations, I'm not even going to be able to tread water. I'm going to start hemorrhaging cash at some point because I'm not earning anything to offset the expenses and costs of running a Formula One team. So again, something needed to happen and the cost cap's obviously one of that. And you and I have talked as well about the fact that the cost cap itself is probably one step. A driver salary cap will probably be another one in terms of creating that mm-hmm. cost uh, cost certainty. But again, to your point, I hope it doesn't become that series where, hey, you can enter Formula One as an expansion team. Here's the chassis that you buy. Here's your two engine choices. Here's your wheel. It's just a prescriptive menu. I sure don't want that. But I also appreciate why we can't keep going the way we've been going the last seven years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, two prime examples of the teams that have kind of slipped into the abyss and how they fared a little bit uh, differently under these very difficult um, circumstances, let's put it, put it that way, and how differently they have uh, fared is uh, McLaren and and, uh, and Williams. And Williams still struggling at the bottom, and McLaren's been able to dig themselves out, but at what cost? I mean, the, the, the money that's been sucked out of them because of their road car division Great and ball. the hard times, so they've sort of been stumbling through the, 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 the pandemic. And I think, ultimately, there's still obviously a market for those uh, luxury sports cars, but look 
how they had to sell off the MTC at Woking and they're basically so leasing true. it back now, right? I mean, so I mean, it's that I guess that's the ugly side of some of these. Uh, and I mean, these are two former teams that were world champions, both uh, in constructors and, and drivers. But hey, just to, to wrap this one up uh, before we go into another break here, Mark. So just to talk to, or talking about this and the and the new teams or sorry, the new teams, the new cars, the FIA said that they don't believe that the, the new cars are going to bring what they're calling an overnight delivery of close racing when they de- debut next year. And I think that's fair. I think we have to temper our expectations a, a little bit. I think that it's obviously going to evolve a little bit, but I will be interesting or will be interested to see exactly what happens when we hit the hit the track in wherever it's going to be next year. I assume it's going to be Australia. Maybe not. We'll see when the schedule gets released just how these cars perform on the track. Not just like you say, probably in the fact that they're going to be two, three, four, five seconds laps slower, but also how how much is, is it going to deliver on the promise of uh, closer racing? And of course, being such a drastic step away of what we've seen, it, it will get refined over time, but it will be... It'll be interesting to see where that what we have as a benchmark come 2020. I like the fact that from a senior leadership perspective, they're really tempering expectations because they come to us and they present this car that is en- like literally engineered to increase competitiveness and overtaking and all the other kind of cool stuff. And at the same time, they're also being very honest and saying, hey, just as an FYI, some teams are going to totally F this up and win the winter. Like some teams are going <laughs> to show up totally ill-equipped to race with this car. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that as a business, they're tempering expectations. But this is what I mean. And you and I have talked about this so much. This is why 2022 is such a wild card. It's such a gamble. And absolutely nothing should be taken for granted. I think we talked last mm-hmm. week about the fact that McLaren gets this right. Their power unit's clicking. Their drivers come around. They could chase a championship. Maybe Red Bull gets it wrong from an aero perspective. And I think based on a lot of reports this week that a lot of their gains this season haven't necessarily been power unit based. They've been really aero based. And none of that matters because you're not carrying any of that over to next year. So I think 2022 could be a total wild card. I would expect six, seven, eight different winners possibly, or maybe it's one winner from one team that we don't expect anything can happen Mm -hmm. next year, but it's just smart from a business perspective to start tempering expectations because you can't go have this glitzy car reveal and say, Hey, we fixed our parity competitive issues and then go into 2022 and see say one team dominate the championship he's right like i think there's going to be some spread in the field and it'll come closer and closer to the center with time yeah absolutely hey time for another break here when we come back i want to talk about one of the most fascinating people in formula one at the moment and that is aston martin no not (laughs) valtteri bottas mr lawrence stroll and i'm going to say mr stroll because uh, he deserves that uh, title and the respect and uh, we will talk about him and more after the break so don't go away we'll be right back in just a moment When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We've talked about Lando, we've talked about Zach, we've talked about the new cars, we've talked about probably 25 other irrelevant things to the world of Formula One, but hey, that's what you guys sign up for when you listen to the show. But moving along now and talking about Aston Martin, there's been quite a few quotable things in the media this week from Lawrence Stroll, the owner and chairman of the team. And he says that his team is willing or he's willing to do whatever it takes to become uh, world champions in Formula One. And he says that being pushed around, uh, I guess, or maybe drawing a sort of a a parallel to the schoolyard is not going to make Aston Martin champions. Anyways, uh, Lawrence had to say, quote, if you're going to be a push around for lack of a better word, I don't think you're going to succeed in this sport or in any other sport. I don't know that I've been a disruptor. I've stood for what I believe to be correct. I have not made a significant investment in this company not to be fighting for world championships. So we're going to do whatever it takes within the rules, obviously. And being a gentleman, I don't think we've done anything that any other team wouldn't want that's trying to build a fantastic organization. I speak out when I think something's been wrong, end quote. What do you make of that quote by Mr. S? I think it's a great comment. I hope it's captured in Drive to Survive Season 4. And it makes it makes total sense. One, I like the fact that he discusses that he hasn't been a, a disruptor. And I think sometimes in the tech world, disruptor is, is a... There's positive connotations because it means you come in and change something that's been the same way for the long time and you've made things better for the consumer. Mm -hmm. I think he's done everything right. He bought a a failing Formula One team. He saved all of the staff. He reinvested the team, built a new factory. He's hiring hundreds of additional personnel to help build out that team. He brought in a former world champion to pilot one of his cars. He linked up with Aston Martin. And let's be honest, like this isn't a licensing agreement. Like we could talk about this and maybe we'll talk about it later, but the L Alfa Romeo Sauber deal. Alfa Romeo, that yep. is a license for all intents and purposes. That's just a really glorified licensing agreement with Aston Martin and this Formula One team. Lawrence went and invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the Aston Martin road car division. He is the executive chairman of the road car division, and he did that to help benefit the Formula One team. He's he's in this, right? Like if you're going to make those type of investments, you're not doing this because you want to put it on your resume. You're doing it because you want to win a world mm-hmm. championship. So I, I very much agree with everything that he says. And I know he's not super, super popular amongst the drive to survive generation. At least that's the sense. Again, that might be because of the link to having his son in one of his cars but you and i've talked about the fact that we also think he would cut that cut that tie in a heartbeat if he thought it was the right thing to do from a business perspective mm-hmm. totally agree with anything is there anything here that you disagree with no absolutely not i think it was a fantastic little insight into the the mindset of Lawrence stroll and i thought it was really fascinating in that i think it was the first episode of season three of uh, dts when they're at the factory and they're talking and just the way that you can tell that he's he's watching and he's listening to every word that's spoken he's he's focusing on the person that's speaking you know that the wheels you know pun intended are spinning in his mind when this thing's going along and to me he's a person that's invested he's interested but he's smart enough to delegate and you know appoint key people like Otmar Safnauer, our team principal to oversee these things but he's going to be involved but he's not necessarily going to to micromanage and i think it's very interesting because you get to this sort of this insight to, to him a little bits and pieces along you know o- over time right and it's very insightful 
to me because you can you can see why he's been this massively successful businessman in all the other areas that he's concentrated on and ju- just uh, based on that alone and I, I love the phrase that you coined some time ago a vanity project that that force india slash racing point slash uh, aston martin is not a vanity project for Lawrence Stroll. He's in it for the right reasons. Yes, his son is in one of his own cars. Uh, Obviously, he's benefited from that situation, but he obviously has talent. But at some point, if he doesn't deliver, that seat's not going to be there. Just like I don't think it'll be there for Sebastian Vettel, who we'll talk about in a moment, doesn't deliver either. I think that when it comes down to it, Lawrence Stroll is in this one hundred and 200%, whatever it is, to make Aston Martin a successful Formula One team to win races, to win championships, and also really uh, bolster that mark in the road card uh, division. And he will do whatever it takes. If that means putting, uh, taking his son out of that car and putting somebody else in it, does that mean maybe getting rid of Sebastian Vettel? Does that mean, you know, doing whatever it is that needs to be done off the track? I think that uh, he'll do it. I think he's that committed to it. And I, I ultimately think that they will be successful. But the question is, and when? let's just be and- very, very, very clear as well that hmm. none of this is going to come easy, right? Like, this, no. To put this into perspective, the Aston Martin road car division is, and partly this is COVID, but even before COVID, it is hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging cash. And they put all of their financial eggs in the basket of the DBX, which is their new SUV. Finally, after mm-hmm. years of delay, went into production last summer. So hopefully they start to see some traction there. But he has his work cut out from like none of this. None of this is a foregone conclusion that any of it will be successful. He's assumed the risk with the road car division. He's assumed the risk with the F1 division, but he's gone all out and he's doing it the right way. And he's investing heavily in both of them. But I just want to be clear that this wasn't a smart investment. This is something that he's doing because he's passionate about developing a championship, world championship uh, contending Formula One team, but he didn't buy Mercedes or Red Bull, a turnkey operation. He bought an overperforming, effectively administration strapped team of 400 employees <laughs> operating out of a barn next to Silverstone. Like what he's got is a fairly significant project on his hand, and there's still no guarantee it's going to be successful. When are they going to move into their new head? Excuse me, headquarters. Is it next year? Because I think they were supposed to move into it this year, and then I think it was delayed or or something. And I think that they're not due to go into their new facility until maybe next year. Yeah, I understand next year. Is that that right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, you make uh, some some really great points there. But uh, let's also not forget that not only has uh, or sorry Lawrence invested a lot of money into that uh, team, into that company, but Total Wolf has as well. So. You know that 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 is oh, interesting. Formula too. One, you and your <laughs> inbred relation—that oh, sounds terrible. But your your very unique relationships, where everyone's investing yeah. in everyone else, and every driver has a contract with every other team. Your 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 original comment or your original choice of word was probably best, but nice yeah, recovery, yeah. bro. I'll give you that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, sticking with uh, Lawrence Stroll, he says that. Uh, well, he's talking about Sebastian Vettel now. He's uh, hailing the most expensive employee of Aston Martin, Sebastian Vettel, in and it's the turnaround that he's had in his season. And he's saying that now that uh, uh, Seb is doing what he's called it a great job, and uh, th- this is one of these stories that. 
I don't know, maybe I just become a little bit skeptical because I've been a, a fan of pro sports you know, my entire life. And whenever I hear a comment about that, it's like, oh, the coach is doing a great job and or whoever, you know, oh, he's been, he he's our guy. We're going with him all year. He's he, he's the best quarterback in the league. And then a week later that the coach is fired and the, you know, the, the star quarterback, you know, so-called is you know sitting on the bench and the rookie or the third stringer is now getting all the snaps, you know, something like that. But it is interesting. I mean, uh, we should give a little bit of context here. Anyways, uh, Lawrence Stroll had to say about Sebastian Vettel's, uh, Vettel particularly, quote, he started slow and is currently up to speed. I think the slow start also had to do with the troubles we encountered in testing, where we have had very, very little running, only three days I think we had. So for a day and a half on the three days, I think we had all kinds of glitches with the car. So a lack of running time. Yeah, he's the most expensive, but I think he's doing a great job, end quote. Yeah, interesting comments. Interesting comments. And I think I know, I my, know. My, my takeaway initially was exactly <laughs> the same as yours, which is in North American sports where an owner or a general manager has to comment on their feelings regarding a specific coach or director or scout. It's usually not a good thing because it's usually reactive. Typically, they typically somebody like Stroll won't come out and comment on an employee or a driver or an athlete unless they're under a little bit of fire. And I think for sure Vettel has been. And I think what he's trying to do here is take off some of the edge. And we probably don't see as much of it because we're not exposed to as much British press. But the British press mm-hmm. is relentless with uh, with Formula One and the drivers and the team principals and the owners. So I think this was really just, hey, you know what? We're going to show, we're going to go out in public. We're going to show you that we've got your back, that we're continuing to support you. We're going to make a very, very public proclamation of exactly that. That said, though, I still find it a little bit funny that he even needed to reference how much he's being paid because in the line of questions that led to these quotes, that never came up. So I thought it was a little bit funny that he felt that he had to, to announce that. The other thing too is it could be that F that Aston Martin kind of had some expectations about what was going to happen this year, high rake versus versus low rake. They just like Mercedes, they were on the wrong side of the arrow changes, and that's had a significant impact. But really, I, you and I have talked a lot about this that we thought that Vettel's principal role here wasn't necessarily to win races this year. And if Stroll honestly mm-hmm. believes it's going to be four or five years until they're in contention, there's no way Vettel's going to be there anyways. That his principal role is to help the young 22 year old Stroll Jr become a better driver mm-hmm. and learn the sport, but also provide really valuable feedback to the engineers so that they can continue to develop the car. And that could be happening. We just don't see any of that because we're impatient and we just look at the race classification week over week and we're not seeing tremendous improvement. And then we become critical. But I think you're right. I think he was being, Stroll was either being proactive in getting in front of an onslaught of criticism of Vettel, or he was just being reactive to the negative press that he's been getting. Yeah, but just in general, I mean, like you say, I mean, they haven't really been lighting up the race results, but I think that uh, Vettel is definitely, I feel like he's gotten a bit of his mojo back, especially over the past uh, couple to maybe several races. I mean, he's obviously not up there winning races and challenging like we expect, but I mean, I I think we've seen some small incremental improvements uh, from from Aston Martin in general, and I, I just feel that Vettel because of that I think that I I think he's just feeling a little bit in a better place he looks more comfortable 
And uh, well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully for Seb's sake that uh, that that Lawrence is true to his words, and we're we're not sitting here next week saying, "Well, we didn't expect to see Sebastian Vettel get cut by the summer break." But you know, joking aside, I don't think uh, we will. Anyways, another uh, Lawrence Stroll quote uh, this uh, week is that he said he would embrace an entry into Formula One by the Volkswagen Group after the the recent news that when uh, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, and uh, Renault were joined by officials from Audi and Porsche, who fall under the uh, VW Group's um, umbrella, were there talking about uh, perhaps uh, becoming involved in the future generation of uh, Formula One power units post-2025 or 2026. And uh, this was a discussion that was uh, described by Formula One CEO and President Stefano Domenicali, saying it was a good step in the right direction. Anyways, Stroll said that uh, he would uh, welcome and embrace the entry of the VW Group. And I I think that... um, that's really cool. I mean, Lawrence goes on to say that uh, he, he b- believes that it would just show how strong Formula One is as a sport and the stronger groups like, um, you know, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, Renault, etc. And then also potentially somebody like the VW group would just uh, help uh, illustrate that. So, so what's your take on Lawrence's kind of comments? Less about Lawrence's comments. I don't think any F1 team owners in a position where they would be critical of somebody joining their ranks. I mean, ultimately, if the Volkswagen group via their Audi or their Porsche brand wanted to get invested in the sport, that's a good thing. It means that there's demand that other companies want to be involved. It probably inflates the value of their own investment. So from a business perspective, it just totally makes sense. I think if it's going to happen, it's more likely now than ever. And I'm still not convinced Volkswagen wants to make this investment. But the sense that we're seeing a really standardized standardized chassis, uh, well, not less, less standardized chassis, but more standardized arrow, more standardized parts. The fact that there's more cost certainty <laughs> around the cost cap, it makes more sense for a big company like the Volkswagen Group to get involved because I think the risk historically has been if you're an executive at one of these auto manufacturers, if you go to the board and present this concept of starting an F1, Ultimately, the first question is, what's it going to cost? And over the last 5, 10, 15 years, there is no answer. But at least now, if you want to get involved <laughs> in F1, for sure, now now there's cost certainty. You can say, hey, look, it's going to cost mm-hmm. us $250 million to stand up a factory, and then it's $150 million a year after that. There's like straight cost certainty. So I think it would be exciting. I think the question is, what brand would Volkswagen, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but what brand would they leverage for the racing efforts? Would it be Audi? Would it be Porsche? Porsche is pretty low. It's It's... It's an attractive brand, but it's probably not going to help sell a lot of mm-hmm. cars. Do you go Audi? I don't know. I think the comments make sense from a business perspective. I'm still not convinced they'll do it, but I think it's still a good sign that there were representatives from both of those brands at the end at the at the meetings about the power units. Absolutely. Volkswagen Das Auto. Anyways, uh, this one, I'm just going to kick this off uh, before we get into the discussion about uh, form, or sorry, the, the, the British Grand Prix and also about the, the sprint winners and qualifying and all that. Anyways, this is kind of cool. Um, apparently this weekend, Formula One is going to revive the classic wreaths for the, uh, for the drivers for the sprint race. And if you've seen these really old school uh, photos and I'm talking, I don't even remember in my lifetime seeing a driver with one of these big, huge wreaths around them, but they're going to introduce them again for the uh, sprint race uh, this weekend. And I think this is actually kind of cool, but yeah, I, I mean, we, we've all seen these pictures probably, I don't know if they did them, well, they did them in like in the 60s, probably into the 70s, but I don't 
ever remember in my lifetime seeing a driver on the podium with, uh, with this big laurel wreath or whatever, whatever it is draped around their shoulders. I mean, Indy and the traditional drink of milk at the at the finish line, that's a thing. But this is kind of cool. It's kind of a real retro thing, but would it be a little bit itchy? <laughs> I hope nobody has an allergic reaction. I'm sure. I'm sure. With all of their financial resources, they probably probably wouldn't uh, adorn somebody with flowers that might uh, initiate or an allergic reaction. But yeah, it's cool. It'll be neat to see. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, time for one last break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the sprint qualifying. We're going to talk about the race and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay. And welcome back to the show. And it's time. Well, we're kind of getting there to the time where the lights get turned off and we get kicked out and we have to go to sleep and get ready to get back qualifying up and go to tomorrow, work tomorrow. Friday, Friday. qualifying. Yes, that, that's something actually worth looking forward to and worth getting out of bed for in the morning. And obviously without the usual groans and complaints about having to get up for a normal work day. But hey, so Sebastian Vettel says it is wrong for F1 sprint qualifying race winners to be credited or credited with the official poll because it's a new discipline for the championship. So what is your thoughts on this one? I was really hoping you were going to go first. <laughs> I cannot I cannot make my mind up on this one. And we went into the spaces chat tonight. I'm like, you know what? There's going to be some folks that are going to have a really compelling argument one way or the other. And, and I'm going to lean into that. And then I'm like, you know what? I haven't made up my mind. I'm just going to let Mark state his position and I'll take a contradictory position just so we've got a bit of a hot take going on here. Ultimately, I, I was fine with what was announced a couple of weeks ago, which was the winner of sprint qualifying for historical record keeping purposes takes pole because ultimately that isn't that exactly what happens that sprint qualifying happens to determine who's ultimately going to be on the front row at the grand prix so to me it kind of makes sense now that said when we were in the spaces chat tonight mm-hmm. there were some folks that argued kind of a contrary position which in fact we did a poll on our twitter feed earlier today and i just i wanted to reinforce what my opinion was initially which is yeah it's totally fine the winner of sprint qualifying should be rewarded with poll for historical purposes but our twitter poll went the opposite direction which is overwhelmingly the the person who takes pole or the top finisher at the friday qualifying should be rewarded with poll so that was that was a bit of a surprise and then some of the perspective during the during the conversation tonight was sprint qualifying is more unpredictable you could be taken out mm-hmm. there could be contact all kinds of things that could disrupt this so i could go in either direction i don't ultimately have an issue with pole being awarded to whoever takes sprint qualifying because ultimately that's what dictates the grid for the grand prix but i'm also super curious to hear what your thoughts are and when i'm done i want to share nico rosberg's tweet because that did annoy me quite a bit oh i was just gonna say i can't believe that you're going to discuss anything on nico rosberg because i know that you're not really his exact fan well i disagreed with the tweet that's why i want to read it well, when you said it annoyed me, I'm like, okay, this is kind of like rounding up, uh, coming out to where I was kind of expected. But your opinion, to, but what do you think? Hey, just, I am, 
I know we talked about this uh, before we did the show that we were going to kind of take, uh, you know, the good cop, bad cop, uh, kind of polar opposite views. But uh, I'm, I'm going to completely go against that because I, I can't argue with you with with this one, because the way that I see it, Friday qualifying sets up and seeds everything for the sprint qualifying on Saturday. And the winner of sprint qualifying on Saturday determines the grid on Sunday. So therefore, it makes sense to give the winner of sprint qualifying the historical pole position for 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 the record books and everything like that i mean unfortunately my 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 brain is just like way too linear i'm just way too narrow-minded to (laughs) to be able to think beyond those uh confines but hit me with nico's uh, tweet there and because he's obviously said something that's gotten underneath your skin and uh well we haven't taken on a formula one world champion yet so but you know, dag nabbit mark it's time that we, we 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 have mix to it up with the, some of the with, relationships with the powers that, that be. by the way we are absolutely <laughs> the worst podcasters if we can't even if we can't even create some competition between the two of us and trying to uh battle out a specific point here but let me quote I think our problem is that we're far too Canadian. We're, we're we, you know, we're just too polite, and you know, we we don't want to rub oh, any feathers. So, quoting Nico Rosberg, who today tweeted, and this is in response to a Sebastian Vettel comment where he said, "quote unquote, it mm-hmm. is wrong for F1 sprint qualifying race winners to be credited with the official pole statistic because it is a new discipline for the championship." Nico Rosberg says, agreeing with his fellow German. Not that that has anything to do with anything, but agreeing with a fellow Formula (laughs) One world champion, even though Nico won one and then retired promptly while Vettel put in four. Anyways, enough. I'm going to stop throwing shade at Nico Rosberg. (laughs) And Nico Rosberg says, and I quote, this is not the right decision. Pole 100% has to go to the fastest guy in qualifying. The sprint race winner should not be awarded pole position. That will totally cannibalize the historic F1 statistics. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's difficult to, uh, I, I guess everybody's going to see it a different way and drivers and former drivers are, are obviously going to see it a little bit uh, different than the rest of us. But I mean, the logic to me is qualifying is set up specifically for the seeding of the the sprint qualifying and the sprint qualifying basically determines the grid for for Sunday. And like I say, just based on that and the fact that I have an extremely narrow mind is that uh, I, I, I just for me, it just kind of flows from A to B to C. In, in order like that. And I understand that there there is the qualifying on, on Sat or Friday, which is sprint qual. Well, I mean, it's not squ- uh, sprint qualifying, but it's qualifying for the sprint. So, and one of the comments yeah, that came th- up right. earlier today as well was if you award, if you award the top performer at Friday qualifying with pole, but they have a terrible sprint qualifying session, you could have somebody that starts the Grand Prix in 15th place Yet they were awarded mm-hmm. statistically with the poll. It's again, I think we're overthinking this, which is what Randy said on the Spaces chat tonight. At the end of the day, I, I think we're probably on the right track, even though I think we disagree with our listeners. You know, I just pulled up the, the poll 65 35 in agreement with awarding the statistical poll to the top performer on Friday. Hmm. But I, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my position on this one because it feels right. Yeah, uh, I, I am too. So if you disagree with us, let us know. And if uh, you try and disabuse me of this uh, this view that I have, uh, my, my rigid point of view on the way that uh, they're awarding this, I, I'd love to hear an alternative um, line yeah, of me thought. Too. On yeah, this send one. us an email. Hey, we'll read it next Mark? time. Yeah, absolutely. ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. Uh, lay it out for us and uh, we'll we'll read those out uh, next show or next week. 
So, Mark, let's talk about the race itself. Saturday is going to be the only race we see at Silverstone the, this year. Last year was the doubleheader with the British Grand Prix and then the 70th anniversary Grand Prix and the obviously heavy, heavily reworked schedule that we saw because of the pandemic in 2020. Anyways, just some basic facts about uh, Silverstone. Race distance is 306.19 kilometers. 52 laps. Circuit length is 5.89 kilometers. Lap record was set by Mr. Max Verstappen last year in 2020. Lap record is a 127.097 seconds. And Pirelli, uh, wisely, might I add, is bringing their hardest compounds this weekend. They're bringing the C1 hard, C2 medium, and the C3 soft. And we saw all sorts of issues with the tires last year. Obviously, some real big drama in the British Grand Prix, what with Carlos Sainz having a, uh, a tire failure. Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton. Lewis driving the Mercedes tricycle basically across the finish line only about five or six seconds ahead of uh, Max Verstappen. And if that happened even one corner sooner on that final final lap, Max would have won that race. And then a week later, it was uh, Max Verstappen winning that race in the 70th anniversary Grand Prix leading home Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas on a track that was very unkind to the Mercedes car last year. The Pirelli's just not operating well on that uh, on the W11. It's going to be interesting. I, I actually didn't look at the weather forecast for this weekend. Do we have any idea of what uh, the, the weather is going to be uh, looking yeah, like? Yeah, uh, earlier Mark? in the week, and we tweeted about this, it looked like it was going to be really warm and dry. Highs about 28, 27 on Saturday. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was going to be pretty dry. But looking at some of the footage today from the event, it looked very, very overcast. So I'm just going to put a little up here mm-hmm. real quick because I want to make sure we're dialed in on this. Yeah, a little bit cooler, a little bit dry. Certainly no prediction for moisture, although in the UK, even in the summer, that can change in a hurry. So hopefully we're going to be okay. But then again, I'm totally cool with a wet race too. Yeah, well, that's uh, not really something that we've uh, seen so far this year. Well, I mean, we did uh, at Imola, but that was more the the after effects of the the, the rain that uh, that took place between I think it was uh, FP three and then, or sorry, not FP three, but uh, between um, you know the the start of the race, and uh, we had that wet track and obviously a very dramatic moments uh, throughout uh, the race, especially uh, opening lap where we saw a number of drivers go off, and then throughout the afternoon and uh, Lewis even putting into the gravel. But yeah, I mean, I would. Be perfectly happy with the with with the wet race. Doesn't sound like yes. We're you're going to be surely one, disappointed. But- the latest forecast is sunny, no clouds. Saturday, Sunday, highs of 28. So for those attending, it's perfect. Okay. It's going to be beautiful. Take your sunscreen, grab a sausage, have fun. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think, uh, Mark? Is this going to be the weekend that uh, Mercedes uh, bounce back? They are going to have some upgrades on the car, but it sounds like that uh, Lewis was, he was pretty trying to cool expectations about it, saying that the upgrades are going to help, but they're not necessarily going to bring them as close to Red Bull as maybe that uh, they would like uh, to see. But still, I can't help but wonder if this is uh, Lewis maybe doing a little bit of... What do you want to call it? Um, Sandbag. A little bit of a sleight yeah. of hand. Yeah. yeah, you maybe just uh, trying to downplay expectations, but still, I mean, the 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 one thing that it 
I, I'm always a little bit reluctant to, to do is to really bet against the team or the driver that's uh, really, really in form. And obviously, Red Bull has been enjoying what's been an unprecedented run of success over the past half dozen races. N- not not unprecedented for them, but uh, certainly unprecedented in terms of, well, the, the, the modern era since 2014. I mean, no team has seen this sort of level of uh, success against uh, Mercedes. And just uh, based on that, I, I find it really hard to 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 start you know suggest uh, and uh, sort of buck that trend i mean at some point obviously what goes up has to come down and uh, red bull's going to have an off weekend for whatever reason max is going to have reliability issues or there's going to be contact or the car is just not going to be suited to the track at hand but i'm just not ready to say it's going to be this weekend just based on what we saw last year and not necessarily that's going to mean that it's going to affect Mercedes in the same way but I guess you could tell just by the hesitancy in my voice that I'm not ready to bet against Max Verstappen and Red Bull just quite yet I'm very much of a like mind a couple of considerations so one well we're going to see similar tire compounds to what we've seen the actual tires that Pirelli bring in this weekend are a new construction something that we haven't seen before so whether that's a dynamic or a change that teams will need to adjust for or might change their driving mm-hmm. style just something to note similar compounds different construction presumably a little bit more durable than we've seen earlier this year but just to, to flash back to the last couple of years at this track so again we talked about this a couple of weeks ago if you flash back to the entire turbo hybrid era lewis won in 14 15 16 17 he was on pole in 18 got spun by kimmy on the first lap at the second corner fought <laughs> his right. way back still yep. finished second Probably would have won that race because there was a point where his teammate Bottas was leading and couldn't hold off Vettel and he just needed to hold off Vettel a little bit longer to give Hamilton the chance to catch up, but he wasn't able to do it. And then Lewis won in 19 and 20. So he's absolutely owned this track. He dominated the track. Mercedes have some things going for them. Uh, You look at Bottas, he's had a couple of great weekends. He had a great run in both those events in Austria. He finished on the podium at the Steering Grand Prix, at the Austrian Grand Prix. There's a little bit of momentum there. I think he's feeling pretty good about himself. I think he feels pretty secure in that seat for the rest of the season. But Silverstone's also an ultra-fast track. It's completely flat. There's no elevation. there's, There's a number of corners, but with the exception of maybe two of them, they're not super, super technical by any means. This is a high-speed track. And having said that, yeah, with the exception of Luffield, really, and maybe maybe the loop, like there isn't a lot of technicality to the track. And I just, I feel like this is going to play well into Red Bull's hands. And I see no reason to think that they're not going to perform exceptionally well here. And I just fear that even if they're a tenth of a second faster over the course of 40, 50, 60 laps, you start to build up a one, two, three, four, five second gap. And then you have to rely on a tire issue or a degradation issue or a mistake in the pit. I just, I feel like if I was putting money on somebody right now, it would be Max Verstappen and Red Bull. Um, But we also talk so much Mm -hmm. about the fact that we didn't expect that Mercedes was going to compete with Max in Austria, that they were probably going to dominate those races. Mercedes has to win here. They cannot, they cannot let Red Bull build more of an advantage in either of the championships. It's getting, 
it's not too much yet. And again, we've talked about how unpredictable a championship can be. We have more than half of the calendar left, but you don't want to be 40, 50, 60 points down in either of the championships going into the summer break. What are your sense? I, I, the sense I get from you though, is you feel the same way that there's no reason to bet against Max and, and Red Bull because they've given no, us no reason to doubt them. Yeah, exactly. And like I say, I mean, just based on what we saw last year, that the 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 Red Bull and the, and the fact that these cars are still very very similar to the 2020 cars, that it really really puts me in a situation that I don't want to you know to to go against that. But having said that, I mean, this is like you say, a track that Lewis Hamilton is absolutely owned. I mean, he's the most winningest driver of all time there. I mean, he's won there what seven eight times now. Yeah, seven times, and uh, Jim Clark and Alan Prost, uh, the, the next two winningest drivers there, they've uh, won it there um, uh, five times. Nigel Mansell won it four times, and then a handful of drivers, including Jack Brabham, Nicky Lauda, and Michael Schumacher won it three times, and then a whole heap of other drivers, including uh, our fellow Canadian, JV, Jacques Villeneuve. I, I didn't favorites. actually realize he won, he won there twice. in 96 and 97. I didn't know that. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then when it comes on to the winningest uh, constructors, uh, Mercedes have won it a whole bunch of times. They've won it almost basically every year except 2018 since uh, 2013. But before that, before 2013, the only other time Mercedes had won the British Grand Prix was all the way back in 1955. But anyways, uh, more to the point at hand that just based on what we've uh, been seeing so far this year, until proven otherwise, I, I think I'm just going to have to go with Max. I think it's going to be uh, Verstappen's going to win. I'm going to say Lewis is going to come second. And then I th- I'm going to go with uh, Perez rounding out the podium for the, the second Red Bull there. Yeah. And then also, I have to admit, just uh, as you were talking, I was just looking at uh, some of the different uh, layouts of uh, Silverstone over over time. But it is just such a fantastic track for for those of you that are new to Formula One. So basically, this is a, a track that was built on the lands of a former RAF uh, bomber base in uh, World War II. I mean, you have the uh, Wellington Strait, which is the name of a very, very famous uh, RAF bomber in World War II. But just some of the corners and some of the sections on this track. After especially after you come out of Cops Corner and then you go into that combination of corners of Maggots, Beckett, and Chapel. I mean, the, the way, especially the, the cornering speeds and the grip that these cars have is just absolutely mind-blowing. The speeds that they're going when they go through those corners is just uh, spectacular. And then, of course, when they go around the back of the track down onto Hangar Straight, another very iconic uh, part of the track there as well, into Stowe, then around in Vale in the club corner into start-finish in the Hamilton Straight. It's just uh, it's it's one of those iconic Formula One tracks, and it's one of my favorites. Uh, unfortunately, unlike yourself, I haven't been there in and you've person. Spent so I've much been time to some in the UK, th- I can't wrap my head around that. I know. I've I've been to so many of the different tracks. I've been to Donington uh, Donington Park. I've been to so many different uh, museums and things like that. But I've never actually been to Silverstone. I mean, just just lay it out for a little bit. Uh, just give it a little bit of context uh, for people where it is because Silverstone is not exactly on the. It's a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah, logistically, it way, right? it's relatively central to the main population bases in the UK. It's it's probably about halfway between London and Birmingham. So. Consider London really in the southeast of the country and 
Birmingham, which is the second biggest metropolitan uh, base in the UK. It's a couple of hours, two, three hours from London up the M40, I guess. So it's kind of halfway between those two, but it's very much in a very agricultural space. It's probably about 30 minutes to Milton Keynes. If you hear us talk a lot about Milton Keynes, it's MK. It's a newer city in the UK that was really built up after the Second World War. That's where Red Bull is based. There's a couple of villages nearby, including Brackley, which of course is one of the Mercedes bases. And I guess Grove's about an hour, hour 20 minutes away. Um, The McLaren factory, MTC, is about an hour 30 minutes away. But for all intents and purposes, when you're there, it's very much in the middle of nowhere. A lot of the celebrities, a lot of the wealth in London, they take helicopters up there on the day of the race. They get chauffeured to their seats. But it's very much an agricultural space. It's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But unlike a lot of Grand Prix, where it's a lot of glitz and glamour and four or five-star hotels and getting shuttled to the track, for a lot of people that attend, mm-hmm. they either stay in more affordable hotels in outlying cities like Oxford or Milton Keynes, which is where we stay typically, or they camp. And a ton, a ton of folks that go, they roll in on Wednesday, they set up camp, and they're there for four or five or six days. And it's just a big party. And it's a lot of fun. And that's absolutely the atmosphere once you get into the track. And on race day, there'll be 140 or 150,000 people. I tried to post some photos recently uh, because I guess it was, of course, my iPhone popped up and said, three years ago today, here's where you were. And it's the British Grand Prix. I'm like, that's pretty <laughs> cool. But it's it's hard to express, especially in the middle of a global pandemic, what it's like to be there, just the volume of people, but the energy is really good. The passion's good. People are obviously super invested in F1. They're not going because it's a spectacle. They're going because they're invested in a driver or a team. Everybody, Mm -hmm. everybody is wearing a colors of their favorite team. You see a ton of people out in Williams, a ton of people out in McLaren, a ton of people out in Mercedes. And of course, you've always got the Ferrari contingent as well. And of course, people are always really proud to to carry their Canadian flag. And every time I've ever, and I don't know if you do the same, but every time I've ever gone to a big motorsports event globally, I always take my Canadian flag. And of course, people come over like, where are you from? In fact, it was so funny. I was going to tell you this story before, but when we were... uh, when we were at, I can't believe I haven't told you the story. When we were at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix back in 2016, after the race, we actually came down on the track to watch the podium celebration. And I had my Canadian flag and this guy mm. comes up to me. He's like, hey man, you're from Canada. He's like, cool. So am I. I'm like, cool. Like, where are you from? He's like, Vancouver. I'm like, where exactly? And he's like, Port Coquitlam. <laughs> his house is like six minutes door to door from mine. And here we are standing. Up. So it's wow. cool that you can connect with people uh, through motorsport and wearing the flag. But it's it's a great track. The, the atmosphere is fantastic. The food's, well, the food's good. It's a lot of British food trucks. So a lot of sausages. They start serving alcohol the minute the gates are open on Sunday. I remember going with my wife and she's buying beer and champagne at 7.30, 8 in the morning as the gates open. It's just a big party. But like I said, to your point, it's really in the middle of nowhere, and a lot of people take the opportunity to camp and just be there to soak up the atmosphere. Similar, I think, to a lot of the other classic European tracks like Spa, which isn't exactly based, or even Austria, it's not exactly based near a major metropolitan space. Yeah, Nürburgring's another one that's well off the beaten path, and there's like a two-lane road that you take when you get off the Autobahn. And it's a disaster getting into the track and especially on Sunday evening after the race is over and there's nothing else going on except people packing up the paddock and the pits and everything and going on or going home. It's uh, terrible to get out. But, you know, I, I can totally get down with like, you know, draping yourself in the flag. You know, this, it's the one thing that I always um, I always find 
bizarre almost i think that's the word to use when it comes to certain sporting events and especially like the tour de france it seems whenever they get into the alps or pyrenees or something there's always one guy like wearing a chicken suit that will run after the peloton when they're going up uh, through the mountains and stuff like that and it's just like you rode your bike or your motorbike or drove out here camp for a week to have like a fleeting encounter with the peloton and the best you could do was wear a giant chicken suit it's just i don't know people bro i don't know <laughs> anyways i think that's all we've got to, for for tonight uh, thank you everybody for for joining in uh, especially uh, those of you uh, checking in on the live stream also uh, i i i upset i didn't get a chance to hang out more in the spaces nobody but that's expects a real you to thing show up well. at this point nobody you know the thing is i i'm, I'm trying to cultivate this sort of um Man of mystery mystique, thing, a little mystique to sort of cover up. Yeah, this mystique. Yeah, the, to to cover the fact that I'm just a, a lazy old bugger. But uh, anyways, that's it, guys. That is a wrap. Thank you very much uh, for for watching. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the race on Sunday. We'll be back on Sunday night to to break down the race and the action, everything that happens at Silverstone. And if you want to get in touch, by all means, uh, do so. Hit us up on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod. On the email, if you have any questions or comments, by all means, do that as well. And that's ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. Until Sunday night, enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the British Grand Prix. And that's it. That's a wrap. We're out of here. Bye for now.